All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 23. Um, David, why don't you crank me up just a little bit, just just a, a hair this evening, just to make sure that amplification is going to help make up for where my voice will lack. Jeremiah 23, looking at verses 9 through 40 this evening, what this world really needs. Last time we were together, we considered the character of our Savior as the Good Shepherd and the Righteous Branch. If you recall, it was very much a a sermon that was in line with what we had talked about from the Millennial Kingdom in the morning, and then just kind of heightening these concepts of the Righteous Branch and of this, uh, this Good Shepherd idea. We sought to root ourselves in an understanding of the promises of God as they relate themselves to the salvation of all mankind and the hope that this would bring men and women who would consider these truths in the generation that is to come, or bring, bring to them the, the truths in the, in the generations that are to come. This concept of a good shepherd, this concept of a righteous branch, though glorious in itself, stands most apparent in the unique and obvious contrast between the character of this good shepherd who would come one day and the character of the current spiritual shepherds of that day, right? As we talk about the good shepherd, as we talk about the righteous branch, it is in contrast to the shepherds of that day, the pastors of that day, the prophets of that day, the priests of that day who were by all accounts apostate. They were, they were, they were wicked. To this end, the word of the Lord turns its eye back toward those men in the rest of Jeremiah 23. And it's through that that, of course, we're going to teach and draw our applications this evening. We are going to see another excoriation, really, of the prophets and the priests and the pastors. But in doing so, we are also going to find a plea from the Lord that reminds us that though the people around us may fail, God never does. And that God is never truly far away. Beginning in verse 9 of Jeremiah 23, the Bible says this, Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of His holiness. As Jeremiah writes the words of God promising this good shepherd, right? Remember, this is the context. This good shepherd that is to come. This righteous branch that is to come. As Jeremiah writes these words, those words give way. He is overcome with sorrow at the current state of the nation. He's writing these words about the good shepherd and it just makes him so overwhelmingly grieved at the current state of the nation when he considers what is to come, when he, when he compares the current state of the nation to that which God is promising. Overcome regarding the tremendous failure of the prophets to call the people of God unto holiness. Jeremiah describes this, uh, this, the nature of this overcoming uh, Um, emotion as uh, being physically all-consuming. The body and the spirit are intimately connected, and we see that here. It's not uncommon for such things as grief to have a noticeable effect upon a person's physical well-being. And Jeremiah describes himself as a drunken man, his bones shaking all over because of the word of the Lord against these prophets, that he was overcome with grief to the point that uh, he, he was not able to think straight, walk straight, that he was shaking all over. That, that there was this physical response within him. Well, what are the words 
of the Lord against these prophets. This is what we read as we continue in the text. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. He says, For the land is full of adulterers, for because of swearing the land mourneth. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, and their force is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane, yea, in my house... Have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. So Jeremiah grieves and he says the land is full of adulterers and this is his grief. The idea there of adulterers, uh, there, there might be a very, a very physical context to that, but uh, the deeper spiritual context is that the priests, the prophets, the, 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 the um, uh, pastors are spiritually adulterous, right? They are unfaithful to the Lord. And he says because of this, the land is, a, uh, because of this swearing, the land mourneth. Uh, that word Swearing there is actually the Hebrew word meaning an oath uh, or a curse. And, and likely what Jeremiah is actually saying there is the land is mourning under the curse that God has placed on it because of the adultery of, this, of these people. So he says even the land itself is mourning over the, the swearing, the curse, the oath of God uh, that he has placed upon this land. Likely the idea here. The pleasant places are dried up, he says, indicating a drought in the wilderness. And of course, the land is full of evil and violence. And this because the spiritual leaders of the land have forsaken their charge. That is, Jeremiah is contrasting and seeing this promise of the good shepherd, of the righteous branch. He is again reminded of just how deeply the spiritual leaders of the land have forsaken their responsibility. God says that their wickedness extends even into his house, even into the temple. This picture becomes very real in Ezekiel 8 through 11. We talked about it this morning as the, the um, presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord departs from the temple and then ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. God sees this evil which is, um, which is enacted in society through their failure to teach, their failure to hold the line of truth. And God's message to them will be quite severe. And it was for this reason that Jeremiah's heart was broken, that he was in such grief. We read in verse 12, Wherefore their way shall be unto them as slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall therein, for I will bring evil upon them even the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. The Lord says that they are on a slippery slope into darkness, that they will fall, that evil will come, and it will come by the hand of the Lord on the day when their false devotion to the living God is visited by the living God himself. This is, this is the thing that the false teachers forgotten that day, and this is the thing that false teachers of any day so regularly forget. They forget that at the end of all the lies... At the end of all the deceits, at the end of all of their pragmatic attempts to make people's lives better by withholding the truth from them, they will be held accountable for those lies. They will face the reckoning for their evil. 
And within this context, God thinks back upon the failures of the prophets of the northern tribes of Israel. And he remembers what happened in the northern tribes of Israel before their captivity, which was at this point some 120 maybe years prior to this point. So we read as we continue in verses 13 and 14. And I have seen the folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied in Baal and caused my people Israel to err. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of the evildoers that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. So God says, he says, I saw the folly. That word there literally meaning the frivolity or the vanity. He says, I saw the folly of the prophets in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes of Israel. So as we think of Samaria, he's talking about northern Israel. He's talking about those northern ten tribes that were taken into the captivity of Assyria, as I mentioned, some 125, 120 years prior. God says, I saw how the prophets of Samaria represented Baal, that would be a false god, the false gods, rather than Jehovah, and thus led the people into error. Really, from day one of the establishment of the northern kingdom of Israel, we see their being an apostasy toward Baal. Those prophets didn't think God cared. They didn't think God saw them as they prophesied in the name of Baal. But what God is saying is, I, I did see them. I saw them. And then he contrasts that with Jerusalem. And, and, and he used this to remind the prophets of Jerusalem that he sees them too. I have seen, God says, the horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They, straighten, they strengthen the hands of evildoers. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They know they're evil, but they don't repent of their evil. God says they are unto him as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, anytime they come up in Scripture, that's a really bad thing, right? <laughs> you don't want to be likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to be likened to cities that were consumed with fire and brimstone because of the depth of their evil. And God says, you're that bad to me. God says, that is how I see you in your rebellion. He continues in verse 15. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. God says he will feed the prophets with wormwood and drink the water of gall. Both of these are extremely bitter substances. Metaphorically, the idea here is that they are going to have a bitter end, that they are going to eat and drink bitterness for their rebellion. And as we perhaps have become accustomed to at this point, this is not the first time we've read this in the book. Last week we talked about in Jeremiah in, in the first the first verses of Jeremiah twenty three we compared that to Jeremiah sixteen we talked about that this morning as well where in both of those cases God says the the character of redemption in Israel will trans, transition from Egypt to this regathering in the north and we we saw this exact same statement that God would feed them with wormwood and make them to drink the water of gall in Jeremiah nine verse fifteen there he was talking though not about the prophets but about the people. 
And he said the people would eat wormwood and drink gall. And in this case, it's the prophets. And because of their profaneness, God would reward them with bitterness. That word profaneness there means impiety. Because they were not pious, because they did not follow the Lord, because they did not go after God and instead uh, went into vanity, frivolity, and, and false idolatry, God would give them bitterness for their lack of the fear of the Lord. If anyone should know what it is to fear the Lord, it should be the spiritual leaders of any people. They are the ones that have the, the most responsibility and therefore the most accountability. But it was not so with these leaders. Indeed, from them came profaneness. And the truly terrible thing about this apostasy, the apostasy of these spiritual leaders, is not even so much they themselves. In any age, the worst thing about seeing a spiritual leaders apostatize is the number of people they take with them. The people who trust these spiritual leaders and for their trust they are rewarded with lies and deceit. To this end, God says to the people in verses 16 and 17, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come upon you. So God's message to the people is stop listening to the prophets because what they are doing is they are, they, they are imagining a vision. That idea of a vision, you know, where the Bible says that where there is no vision, the people perish. The idea there is a revelation of the Lord. Um, the idea is, is a, a understanding of the word of the Lord, the understanding of the will of God. They have their own vision and then they pass it off as God's vision. They have their own words and they pass it off as God's word. It is a vision of their own heart rather than a vision of the heart of the Lord, of the message of the Lord. Their message is not a message from God. It's a message from themselves. And regardless of how uplifting or inspiring that message might be, it's not from the Lord. God says these people are still speaking to those uh, who are looking for a validation of their sin. God calls these them that despise me. The prophets of the day of Jeremiah's writing were attempting to convince the people of the land that peace was in their future. And these prophets look at the men and women who are utterly walking in sin, who despise the Lord and telling them, your future is bright, the Lord is on your side. And this was the problem. And it's all lies. It's all lies. Verse 18. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? In other words, is anyone listening? Is anyone listening? Has anyone heard the true words of God? Who has heard and understood what is about to happen in the land? 
Who understands the Lord's anger over these things? Who is willing to acknowledge truth rather than just go after what sounds good? Go after what is uplifting or encouraging or inspiring. What keeps people going today rather than telling them the truth? Is anybody listening? Verses 19 and 20. God says, Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord is gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, ye shall consider it perfectly. I love that statement. God warns that his anger has been unleashed. There is a whirlwind coming. A storm is coming. A storm of the Lord, and it's going to fall upon the head of the wicked. And that this anger will not return, this storm will not cease, until God is satisfied, until justice is vindicated. And then God makes this statement, which I said I love. It's a prophetic statement. In the latter days ye shall consider it perfectly. In other words, remember how God promised that righteous branch? That God promised that good shepherd who would restore the nation and bring them back and that they would serve and love the Lord. And God says, I'm telling you about all this judgment and there's coming a day in the latter days when you're going to look back and you're going to say, yep, everything that God did was just. In the latter days, you're going to consider what I'm telling you and you're going to understand it. You're going to understand why it happened. You're going to understand what you did wrong. And you are going to agree with me that you were in the wrong. Once again, a reminder that God has a plan, that mercy is on the horizon. We're still waiting for it today, but mercy is there. God will be faithful to his people. He says in 2020 hindsight, you don't understand it today, but you will. When, when you accept the good shepherd, when you accept the righteous branch, when he comes and he regathers you, when in that day you will be regathered from the north and from all the nations and your redemption will transition from a redemption of, ex, of the exodus in Egypt to the redemption from the north and from all the lands that you have been scattered, on that day you will consider this and you will understand it perfectly. You will understand it. Verses 21 and 22. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Once again, a tragic statement. God makes it very clear that he did not send these prophets. These prophets, Jeremiah says, that are speaking to you, these prophets that are lifting up their voice against me and, and really against you, that, that God did not send them. He didn't send them, but they ran toward you anyway. He didn't speak through them, but they prophesied anyway. And then we find an interesting what if. What if? What if they had spoken for the Lord? God says, if only these prophets would have done what is right. If only they had stood in the counsel of the Lord. If only they had encouraged the people of Israel to listen. Then the people wouldn't be on a path of destruction. Then the people who respect these leaders in the land would have turned from their evil ways. As they did in the days of Hezekiah. As they did in the days of Josiah. And thus we see the power of the pulpit. 
that what I do on any given week does have an impact on the heart of the hearers. That ministers are accountable for what they say because what they say does matter in relation to how people live their lives. And as we look at a completely ineffective Christian subculture in this nation, there is little doubt that the weakness of Christian culture in this nation falls at the feet of the pulpits in this land. So God reminds these prophets and the people that he sees them, that he cares about what he sees, that even though the prophets are trying to tell them that God doesn't care, he does care. Verses 23 and 24. I am a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth saith the Lord. God, God says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not far away. I'm right here. Now, this statement can be effective in a number of contexts, which we'll talk about in our application. God's point here is not the positive context. You know, in a, in a, in a, when, when you're having a bad day, it's important to know that God is nigh and not afar off. In this case, this is the other way around. It's, you're doing evil, and I'm right here. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not afar off. My back is not turned. I'm, I'm right here. You're doing this evil right in front of me. That's the idea here, right? God is not some absentee father who has no time or interest in his children. Much to the contrary, God is near. God very much cares. So God asks, can anything hide from me that you're doing? Does God, do I not fill heaven and earth? God says, and here we find a doctrine which we call the omnipresence of God. Take note that this does not mean God is in everything and everyone in the sense that the modern um, false doctrine would teach it that in every flower and in every plant and in every tree is God and that is God and it's all a part of God. Well, no, God is everywhere and, 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 and God created all things, but God is a person, right? He's not, he's not just everything. He's not just the essence of everything as it is. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. His fingerprints are in everything. His fingerprints are in every spider's web. His fingerprints are in every leaf and every flower petal. His fingerprints are are, are on the, the beauty of creation and it teaches us of his glory and it teaches us of his, of his majesty and it teaches us of his order and, and, and his perfections and it teaches us of his power and his, and, and his love and his creativity and all of these things. But that's not God, right? I, I don't look at, at, at a wave in the ocean and say that is God. That's a part of God. No, that's, that's the fingerprints of God. And so God, when he says he fills heaven and earth, it's not that we all have our little spark of divinity and we are all a little bit of God and, 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 and everything's a little bit of God. It, it's much to the rather that God is everywhere. He sees all things. God fills heaven and earth, omnipresent, everywhere. Not in everything, but is everywhere. Verses 25 to 27. I have heard what the prophet said, that prophecy... Lies in, uh, um, excuse me, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, 
as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. God says, I hear what the prophets say. They say, I dreamed a dream. And God says, why are they lying? Why does deceit fill their hearts? God accuses these false prophets of seeking to cause the people to forget God's name through their false dreams. When a man, even when he has good intentions, lies about God, he draws the attention of people away from God and upon himself. When you see these false teachers who talk about the, the, the visions that they're having and the dreams that they're having, and, and, and it's so clearly for show, and they're thinking by doing this, I'm hoping to encourage someone. I'm hoping that someone will be uplifted and encouraged by what I have to say. I saw a vision about you, and, and, and you were exalted and lifted up, and, and they say all of these things, hoping that in doing that, there's going to be some nugget of encouragement that's going to make people excited and happy and, and uplifted and fulfilled. But what they're actually doing is they're drawing people away from the message of the Lord and they're putting it on themselves. That's their message, not God's message. People look to the man rather than to the message and this is inevitable. It's inevitably, even in a scenario where the man has good intentions, it inevitably causes people to forget God if it's not from the Lord. And the worst part, if I may say it that way, is that we don't need to spice up God's word to make it impactful. I can hardly talk tonight, but you know what? It doesn't matter because it's not about me. As long as you can discern the words of my mouth, the word of God has its own power. The word of God has its own effect. It doesn't need my inflections. It doesn't need the, the capacity for me to, to emphasize my voice. I don't need to convince you of anything of the word of God. I don't... God's word has power. In this age of the church is a business or the church is entertainment, pastors are convinced that God's word needs our help in order to be engaging, in order to touch the hearts of men, in order to be understood, in order to be appreciated. And maybe it's for that very reason that this message gets to be a message where I can hardly get words out of my mouth. To remind us that the word of God in itself has power and the word of God does not need my help to go forth with power. It doesn't need my creativity to go forth with power. I don't have to spice it up or spruce it up or give it some sort of extra boost in order for it to do what it's commissioned to do by the Spirit of God in the hearts of men. And God says as much as we continue. Verses 28 and 29. The prophets that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Saith the Lord. Is not my word like, a like as a fire? Saith the Lord. And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? God says, if you receive a dream from me, great, share it. If you have a word from me, fantastic. Speak it faithfully. But when it doesn't come from me, it has no power. When it doesn't come from me, it's empty. It may have an effect. It may interest the hearers. It may be uplifting, encouraging, motivating. But if it doesn't come from God, then it doesn't have the power of God. It's little more than chaff. That's the husk around the wheat. And God says, what is the chaff to the wheat? 
What is the husk to the substance? Then God says, Is not my word like a fire? Like as a fire, he says here. Like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. God's word, the power of God rests upon the word of God. God's word does not need my help to become effective. God's word does not need my wisdom to become effective. God's word does not need my talents and my abilities to become effective. God's word needs to be proclaimed clearly and distinctly. And if God's word is proclaimed in this manner, then it must, without fail, accomplish the work of God because it has the power of God behind it and no man can resist that. So we read in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, you know it. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God's word does not return void. Do you believe it? God's word inevitably accomplishes the purpose unto which it is sent. Now, it may not accomplish the purpose that I think it should. It may not accomplish the purpose in the way I think it should. It may not accomplish it in the manner I think it should. But when I share the word of God with someone... When the truth of the word of God goes forth, it carries with it the power of God. We need to understand this perspective. We need to understand this. We need to have the faith to get a hold of this concept that the word of God carries with it by default the power of God. And whether or not I see what I would consider to be a, the successful results of the word of God in the ears of the hearers really doesn't matter. When God's word goes forth, it will accomplish God's purpose. It has a life of its own. It has a power of its own, compelled by the Spirit of God. It is the living word, quick and powerful, the, word, the, the New Testament tells us. And any time I try to tweak it, twist it, soften it, often in an attempt to make it more effective, what I actually do is I cause the heart of the hearer to lose focus upon the words of God because I'm turning it to the manner in which I'm attempting to soften the message or tweak the message. And to whatever degree the word of God is lessened by me, to that degree the power of God is stunted. And it really isn't necessary because the word of God is like is a fire. It's like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. God's word is enough. Telling God's word, living God's word, this has power so that I don't have to become pragmatic in order to become effective. I don't have to tweak things and twist things and water things down and soften things and, and come through back doors because the word of God has power if we will but trust it. Verses 30 to 32. Therefore, behold, God says, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words. Everyone from his neighbor. Notice how he describes that. The prophets are stealing the word of God from, his, from their neighbors. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. 
Yet I send them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. God is against the prophets of this land at this time. The prophets that steal God's word by their lies. That's what they're doing. That's what God says they're doing. That when they put emphasis upon their false dreams, when they put emphasis upon their false points of emphasis, their false perspectives, when they take the word of God and they try to twist it and make it socially acceptable or culturally acceptable or whatever the case may be, what they're actually doing is they are wasting an opportunity and thus stealing the word of God from out of the, hearers of the, out of the ears of the hearers as they speak in these false dreams, as they give these people false hope as they cause these people to lose sight of God's message because of their own message. God says, I didn't send them. I didn't command them. And to this end, they simply cannot profit the people. There is not profit in our own message. There's profit. There's power in the word of God. The people don't need kind words. The people don't need scathing words either. The people don't need our, our, our uh, overt levels of sympathy and empathy. But the people also don't need our scathing rebukes. You know what the people need? Do you know what people need? They need God's word. They need the word of the Lord. And when people get God's word, then they have what they need. God then speaks to Jeremiah, beginning in verse 33, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, verses 33 through 40. And when this people, or the prophet, or a priest, shall ask thee, saying, What is the burden of the Lord? Thou shalt then say unto them, What burden? I will even forsake you, saith the Lord. And as for the prophet, and the priest, and the people, that shall say, The burden of the Lord... I will even punish that man in his house. Thus shall you say everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, What hath the Lord answered? And what hath the Lord spoken? And the burden of the Lord shall ye mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden. For ye have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts, uh, our God. Thus shalt thou say to the prophet, What hath the Lord answered thee? And what hath the Lord spoken? But since ye say the burden of the Lord, therefore thus saith the Lord, because ye say this word, the burden of the Lord, and I have sent unto you, saying, ye shall not say, excuse me, I'm off one there, ye shall not say the burden of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you, and I will forsake you, and the city that I gave you, and your fathers, and cast you out of my presence, and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you, and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. So God says to Jeremiah, if the people, or a prophet, or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? This would perhaps be in jest. I mean, they've heard it, but perhaps mockingly, whatever the case may be, uh, as no one in the land actually seemed to care what the burden of the Lord was, right? God says, answer them this. There's no burden. I'll forsake you. I'll forsake you. Let ministry reflect message. I'll forsake you. I will punish you. And then God says, after you've told them, don't mention it anymore. 
Let it go. Forsake them. Let your life reflect the message. Because when the burden of the Lord goes forth, it doesn't just fall on deaf ears. Here's the problem. Here's the problem, God says. You send forth the burden of the Lord, and it's like every time the burden goes forth, it's another opportunity for the false prophet to pervert it. So forsake, so forsake the burden as a way of emphasizing the burden. Forsake the message. Don't give them the message anymore so that they can't pervert it anymore. And by not giving them the message, you're driving the point home. The message is you are forsaken. That's, what's, that, that's the idea here. Because the message falls on perverse ears that take the burden of the Lord and twist it to say something it doesn't, corrupt it, and send it back out to do more damage than good. And the prophet who claims to speak in the name of God but does not, God says, I will utterly forget you, forsake you, your city, and I will cast you out of my presence. And God tells them that they will live in infamy and in shame and in reproach. Again, not a very pleasant passage. But it, it, it comes to a pleasant application as long as we're looking at it the right way. Three points of application this evening. Point number one. The world does not need uplifting and inspiring. The word needs the truth and love. The world, excuse me. There's a real problem in the church today. And if you're writing these in order... I'm actually in the next slide flipping the order of two and three, so uh, I apologize. That will be a little bit distracting for you. I must have just missed this one slide when I was rearranging the points in my, my slides. And the church has been convinced that our job is to inspire people and to encourage people and to spread joy. That, that is not the church's job. And we can fully understand where this confusion comes from. See, because we sang a song right before you sang a song, right before we, I preached for you this evening. Singing I go along life's road, praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Singing I go along life's road, for Jesus has lifted my load. Praise God for lifted loads. You know what? It's a fantastic and joyful thing to be a child of the living God. It is a joyful thing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and so we can understand the confusion, can we not? Inspiration, encouragement, joy, peace, these are the expected results if the church does its job, right? If, if I am doing my job as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are doing a jo our job as, as a church, then we are leaving this place in general with, with joy in our hearts. Then we are living life with joy in our hearts. But see, here's the thing. The church doesn't produce those results, does it? God produces those results. The, those results are, are, are results. They're, they're the effects, not the cause. The church's job, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church's job is to lovingly tell people the truth, which means to lovingly tell people something that many people don't want to hear, that they are not good enough for God, that they are not worthy of God, that they cannot do anything to make themselves good enough for God, and that the only way that this can change is by accepting that only Jesus Christ himself is good enough for God. 
And that if we will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, he will clothe us in his righteousness, clothe us in his goodness, and thus we will be made good enough for God in Christ. Not in ourselves, but in Christ. And once I'm clothed in that righteousness, God then produces in me peace, joy, encouragement, inspiration. That is the fruit of Christ in me. But because people don't want to hear the bad news, the church is in a tough spot. I want people to find peace and joy and be encouraged and inspired, but I don't want to tell them the bad news because that doesn't encourage or inspire them. So the church starts attempting to synthetically replicate the fruit of the Spirit apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the church, instead of teaching the gospel to produce joy and encouragement and inspiration and upliftment, uplift, uplifting, up, uplift, the church instead tries to replicate those things apart from the gospel, apart from the bad news that turns into good news. So the church seeks to turn God into kind of a divine talk show host seeking to inspire people with exciting and unbelievable events of encouragement, rainbows and butterflies and happiness and kindness and the like. So we go through and we get on these highs of, look what happened here, and here's a great story of, of kindness, and here's what happens when love conquers all, and here's what, you know, all of these things. And, and, and we get put onto this inspiring and uplifting goal of let's just keep people happy and encourage people and show them a little bit of, of, of light in the darkness. But the problem is, is that none of it draws them closer to the word of God. It's just drawing them closer to some emotional high, some emotional uplifting. Instead, they're taught that they don't need the good word of God in order to have these feelings. That's what they're being taught, right? Effectively. As the church seeks to produce these feelings apart from the Word of God, they are being conditioned to believe that they don't need the Word of God to have these feelings. Unfortunately, they're fleeting. They don't last because they have no foundation. And there's no stability. And these feelings, by the way, are not just foundationless, but they are inferior in every way to the fruit of the Spirit. But see, you don't know what you're missing if you've never experienced it. But of course, these people don't know, they cannot know that they're getting an inferior product because they've never tasted of that heavenly gift. They're not being led by the word of life. They're being led to a cheap coffee, copy, a foreign knockoff of the original. They're being given a bargain basement counterfeit, completely gospel free and being told that it's the genuine article. The only problem is that this bargain basement counterfeit has no staying power. It's like sugar to the tongue. It's sweet in taste, but it's devoid of any nutritional value. So the masses of inspired and uplifted people now find themselves going from full to empty, full to empty, full to empty all the time. They are on a spiritual roller coaster ride, living on an emotional and spiritual roller coaster of ups and downs. And thus they demand a constant fill up of uplifting and inspiring 
inspiring things. They have to have their inspiration tank constantly filled or else they simply run dry and they collapse back into the darkness of their own hearts and they may even collapse deeper every time. And the problem is that the church in an attempt to give people the results of the fruit of the Spirit, the results of Christ, without offering them the substance of Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which does contain some bad news, which does ask you to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, which does call you to see yourself as one who needs to be afflicted and mourn and to cleanse your hands, ye sinner, and purify your ways, ye double-minded. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up, right? And the church says, that's hard work. That's not, that's not good to put on a billboard. That's not, that's not billboard material. I can't, I, I can't find a good catchphrase to put on a t-shirt for my, for my teens. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. You know, be afflicted and mourn. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That, that, that's not catchy. And so they say, how can we produce the results without the power? And that's what was happening in Jeremiah's day. The prophets and the priests and the pastors were seeking to find the power, the, the, insp- or the, the, the results, the inspiration, the upliftedness. But they said, we can't go through the, the process to get there. That's, that's too hard. That's too unpleasant. So they tried to replicate the process without the power, without the message. And what this creates is a church that is ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So they seek to give people the results of the gospel without the essential call to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And so far from at least even showing people a glimmer of light, as God has said this evening, it actually steals the word of God from people. The effect in the hearts of most is that they're drawn further from the name of God and deeper into the darkness of their own deceits. And while every man will stand before God for his own choices, we know that. Like with the prophets in the days of Jeremiah, the church of our day, broadly speaking, of course, bears a large portion of the blame for the failures that are within our culture to live and to preach the truth of the word of God with love and distinction. And it has not ended well for our churches. It has not ended well for our culture. To this end, point number two, spiritual effectiveness is not an outworking of talent or ability. Spiritual effectiveness, Christian, is an outworking of faithfulness and submission. Let us remind ourselves where the power comes from to do the work of God. And we're not just talking about the power of the pulpit. I'm talking about the power that you have to live and to be a testimony among those unto whom you minister. Family members, friends, co-workers. God does not call us unto numbers. God does not call us unto popularity. God does not need you to be talented or smart or ultra capable to use you effectively. What God needs are men and women who will be faithful to his word, who will be obedient to his word, who will submit themselves to his word. That's what God needs. That's where the power of God is. The power of God is not in your natural charisma. The power of God is not in your intellect. 
The power of God is not in those things. The power of God is in His Word. To this end, may I say this? Don't be afraid to minister because you fear of something that you lack. Don't fail to share the gospel because you feel like you probably don't know it well enough to answer everyone's questions. Don't fail to tell them the truth because they might ask you something you don't know. Don't fail to serve the Lord because you fear that you're not smart enough or talented enough or old enough or young enough or whatever it might be. Don't allow those physical roadblocks, those mental roadblocks, those worldly things by which we gauge good and bad, by which we gauge effectiveness and ineffectiveness. Don't let those things hinder you because that is not how God works. God does not need your talents. Can he use your talents? Absolutely. Does he need them? Absolutely not. The power of God is not about you. When you share the gospel, if you walk away without having led that person to the Lord or having convinced them of the truth, that isn't a failure on your part. If you walk away having said, I don't know the answer to all of your questions, that's not a failure on your part. You put the word of God out there to be heard, and that is your job. The power of God is not in your ability to express yourself well, the ability to have all of the answers, the ability to not be tongue-tied. The power of God is in the truth, the truth of his word. Is not his word like as a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God does not need you to soften a heart of stone. God's word can break that heart of stone. If God's word went forth with clarity, then you can trust that God's word will accomplish whatever purpose God has for it. Now, that purpose may not be an acknowledgement of the truth in the heart of the hearer. Maybe that's just one seed along the path. Maybe that's just one. Maybe it is one layer, one extra layer of accusation on Judgment Day. But that's God's purpose too. First Peter tells us that. That it may very well be that your good testimony will be a part of the record that when God, when men stand before God and they say, God, when did I have an opportunity to hear the gospel? And God points to you and says right there, that, that servant of mine, that was the gospel and you ignored it. That's the word of God's purpose as well. God's word is the power of God unto salvation, to convict the heart of sin, to conform men's hearts into righteousness, to soften the heart of stone, to change lives. The truth of God's word is that power. It's not your presentation. It's not your talent. It's not your charisma. It's not your capabilities. It is the power of God found in his word. So minister God's word. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't be hesitant. Trust it implicitly. Trust that God's word can do the work. Don't worry about the results. Don't fear man's response. Don't shy away from the truth because the truth is unpalatable to many or to most. Share in love. Don't be a jerk. Right? Don't be pushy. Share in love. Do it right. But it's not, it's not your job to demand. It's not your job to insist. We're not salesmen. We don't need to apply pressure tactics. We don't need to get a decision today. 
We don't need to, 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 to convince people to see things our way. That's not our job. We are messengers charged with a message that in itself has power, in itself is perfectly effective. It doesn't need your help. It only needs your obedience, your submission, your faithfulness. The word of God doesn't, uh, the world doesn't need uplifting and inspiring. The world needs the truth and love. Spiritual effectiveness is not an outworking of talent or ability. It's an outworking of faithfulness and submission. Finally, number three, God is at hand and not afar off. On the day that Jeremiah wrote this point, as we've mentioned already, it's important for, uh, for us to remember this was a, a negative statement here, right? That God sees all, God knows all, and God knows when you've done wrong. The scriptures are full of these admonitions. Psalm 139 speaks uh, of God's omnipresence, right? He says in Psalm 139, with, uh, verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, verse 11, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast, covered, thou hast possessed my reins, my intentions. You know my heart. You know my intentions there. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, which we spoke of in Sunday school this morning. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Luke 8, verse 17, for nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. To this end, we understand that even if no one else sees, God sees, right? Even if it seems as though God, uh, no one else is watching, God is watching. The, that old adage, character is what you do when no one's looking. Well, that doesn't apply for a Christian that knows, what he's, knows his, his stuff because there's no such thing as no one's looking. That never happens. That, that, that's not a thing. There's always someone looking. There's always someone watching. There's always someone with me. There's someone with me in the darkness. And not only that, but Psalm 139 says, Thou hast possessed my reins. It's not just what I do in the darkness. It's what I think in the darkness. It's what I intend in the darkness. And this should change, of course, the way that we live. Because nothing is not... No, excuse me, nothing is secret that shall not be made known. No one ever gets away with anything. But may I also take this point and just turn it to a point of encouragement? That's not the point of the text, of course, this evening. But can we remind ourselves of this? God is at hand and not afar off. That God is near can be a real terror to the sinner, can't it? 
But that God is near is a tremendous comfort to the righteous. Those times of difficulty and sorrow, those times where you feel like no one understands, those times that you're really struggling, you know who's near? God is near. He's not afar off. Those times of confusion, God is near. He's not afar off. Those times of trial, God is near. He is not afar off. I don't have to go on a pilgrimage to find God. I don't have to climb to the highest mountain. I don't have to go to the ends of the earth to be worthy of his ear. I don't have to bring tremendous, bountiful gifts to him in order to get his attention. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. The Lord is near and he's not afar off. You know what this world really needs? This world does not need more uplifting and encouraging. This world needs followers of Christ to be followers of Christ. This world needs to see men and women who know the Word of God, believe the Word of God, obey the Word of God, and trust the power of the Word of God to do its work who know that God is there, He's always watching, He is near, and who live within this knowledge, both for good and uh, positively and negatively, who live within this knowledge to dictate what we do and don't do, while simultaneously living within this knowledge to encourage us in the Lord in the hard days. What this world needs is men and women who will tell the truth in love and not try to produce the outward works of the, uh, of the fruit of the Spirit in people, but produce Christ in people and let the works follow. Let the fruit follow. This is, in fact, the only hope for the world. That's not just what the world needs. It is the only hope that this world has. And God help us to be a small part of that right here. God help us to be a small part of that in our spheres of influence. A small part of that in your family. A small part of that at your workplace. A small part of that in your neighborhood. A small part of that in this church. Right here where we live. That we might bring to one another. That we might bring to this part of our world what this world really needs. Truth. God's Word, which in itself has power. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.